Welcome to Tamarack's podcast series on why loneliness is becoming a health issue in Canada and what we can do about it. Studies have shown that in our communities, people are reporting fewer social connections, decreased tolerance and trust, and eroding political and civic engagement. Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, suggests that our overall experiences of being in community have been steadily declining since the 1960s. Social isolation has been demonstrated to have negative impacts on health and well-being. My name is Allison Homer, Manager of Cities with the Tamarack Institute. Today I'll be speaking with Kim Samuel. Kim is founder of the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness and an academic lecturer at institutions including Oxford, Harvard, and McGill Universities. Welcome, Kim. Thank you very much, Allison. It's a pleasure to be with you. Kim, as a policy advisor with the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, you've conducted research around the world, from South Africa to Mozambique, um, with Indigenous communities here in Canada. You've published many papers, including Social Isolation and its Relationship to Multidimensional Poverty. Based on what you've learned, how do you say loneliness fits into the conversation of social isolation? Uh, thanks for asking that. It's a, it's a really important question. My uh, friend and colleague, Sabina Alkire, who directs the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, recently described a scenario that helps shine light on this connection. Imagine two women or fruit vendors in a large metropolis in Latin America. Only one day, the police go to both of them and arbitrarily force them to shut down their businesses, leaving both of them without livelihoods. One woman goes home in despair because she has nothing, no money, no close family, no support network, no shoulder to cry on. It's a tragic situation. The other woman also goes home with no money, and yet she finds her husband who comforts her She finds her extended family who look out for her, her network of friends who tell her jokes to cheer her up. On paper, these two women might be in the exact same situation. They both might live at the same level of extreme poverty, according to official statistics. Yet, their lived experience is radically different. Loneliness multiplies the pain of poverty. Social connection helps to heal it. Years ago, I was investigating this question about loneliness and poverty as an academic researcher, and I spoke with a woman in a village in Mozambique, and this is how she explained it to me. She said, the most important thing is being able to live with others, because if one is poor, relating with others can reduce one's poverty. So for me, all of this speaks to the same principle. We need to go beyond measures of poverty that are based exclusively on impersonal calculations around GDP, and instead we need to start thinking about real human well-being. The work of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative centers on developing and implementing what are called multidimensional measures of poverty, and these measures are about understanding how people experience poverty in multiple and simultaneous ways. Through my time there as a visiting scholar and policy advisor over the years, I've worked to investigate how we can build measures 
of social isolation into measurements of multidimensional poverty. What this means is measuring loneliness and connection, and it also means measuring related elements of well-being, like the experience of respect and freedom from humiliation. Isolation is a lot bigger than just human contact. I've been contemplating these ideas for about two decades now. There's a story I'd like to share with you that shaped how I think about isolation, poverty, and well-being. It's an experience that shaped my life's work. In 2002, I had the honor of meeting Nelson Mandela at a dinner in New York, and I asked him a personal question about how he managed the incredible isolation that he must have encountered over his nearly 30 years as a political prisoner. And he said to me, I've never been isolated. It might have been one of the strangest answers I've ever heard in my life. The man was imprisoned and kept away from his community and his loved ones for decades on Robben Island, that desolate rock in the Indian Ocean. He must have been incredibly lonely. Yet Mandela explained to me, on Robben Island, we were all brothers working together with a common purpose. I was never alone. And then he went on to say, but I've seen isolation. I've seen it in the child living with HIV in a village whom no one will care for, no one will feed, no one will clothe, no one will touch. I have seen isolation and it is very bad. That was a light bulb moment for me. And I realized that it was what I was gonna be working on for the rest of my life. To me, there are just so many layers and teachings within this short conversation. Mandela demonstrated to me that isolation is often more complex than just social contact. Even though he was sequestered from society, he still stayed connected to his people through a sense of shared mission and purpose. He never stopped sharing his gifts, but he was never isolated. The conversation revealed to me that there's so much mystery in the study of isolation, and yet Mandela also explained clearly that he saw loneliness and isolation as deeply serious problems facing humanity, particularly in relation to poverty. In describing that child with HIV who no one will care for, no one will feed, no one will clothe, no one will touch, Mandela presented social isolation as an unquestionable challenge to our conscience. He was describing not just a simple deficit of social contact, but also stigma, shame, and a denial of agency. He was describing a profound kind of disconnection. Mandela understood this link between isolation and poverty. He knew that loneliness could vastly amplify material deprivation, just as Sabina Alkire demonstrates with her example of the two women fruit vendors. The link between isolation and poverty has been a key part of my life's work, as you can tell. And it's really heartening to see that you're making this part of your life's work too. Thank you so much for those examples, Kim. Um, I love in your work how you frame social connectedness as an important missing ingredient in the way that we understand poverty. Um, and you write about how social isolation can stem from living in poverty. It can also contribute to its persistence. Um, given the changing social fabrics in our communities, have you noticed any trends around how the relationship between poverty and loneliness is changing over time? The evidence is growing 
stronger every day. We need social connection for our well-being and our physical health as human beings. And like poverty, social isolation is a massive threat to psychological and physiological wellness. A leading neuroscientist named Julian Holt Lundstedt has done a systemic review of the literature and concluded that loneliness is the physiological equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. New research is showing that social disconnection correlates with increases in systemic inflammation, heart disease, dementia, and death rates. Other research shows that social isolation could lead to reduced expression of genes that are responsible for responding to viruses. So social disconnection isn't just a hurdle to accessing essential health services. It's a real driver of disease. It's a cause of stress, anxiety, depression, and despair that manifests as all kinds of conditions down to the cellular level. In short, we need connection for our health. When I think about the people and places facing serious poverty today, particularly in the industrialized world, I think about the opiate epidemic. Social isolation is both a cause and consequence of that health crisis. Last year, I had a conversation with Carl Hart, a brilliant researcher on the neuroscience of addiction. And he told me that drug addiction is ultimately about the lack of what he calls competing reinforcers to drug use, factors like family bonds, a sense of place in the community, meaningful work, economic opportunity, and other factors. In other words, People get addicted when they're isolated. People succumb to opiates and other drugs when there's no connection and rootedness in a caring community. This is just one of the ways that loneliness and poverty reinforce each other. It's an example of why there's a pressing need to address social isolation. So to answer your question, Allison, there are all kinds of reasons why we need to act on loneliness and poverty and why we need to boost connection in our communities and across humanity as a whole. To me, it's not just that we need to boost connection in the sense of simple human contact. This isn't just about loneliness. I believe it's our connection to what I call the four Ps, people, place, power, and purpose. Yes, this means overcoming social disconnection, and it also means finding ways to connect with land and nature, to connect with empowerment and agency, in political and economic systems and to connect with a sense of mission and orientation in one's life. Connection to all of these four Ps is what I call belonging. It's the experience of being at home in the social, environmental, organizational, and cultural context of one's own life. It's a state of wholeness. Belonging is beloved community, rootedness in a place, a feeling of ownership and shared outcomes, and a sense of shared mission. It's not just human contact, it's care. In the story I shared about Nelson Mandela, he was able to overcome isolation in spite of horrendous circumstances because he was able to maintain connection to his power and purpose, his love of his community and his home. He said it himself, he was never isolated. So back to your question of why these issues matter. I believe we're talking here about so many of the pressing challenges of the 21st century. We're talking about a pressing need for connection. Today, there are more forced migrants fleeing their homes than at any time since World War II. Our environment in an unmatched 
state of vulnerability. Young people around the world are facing unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety. According to a 2019 Gallup study of 151,000 people in more than 140 countries, there's a striking rise in reports of negative emotions, including worry, anger, sadness, and stress. And of course, there's a veritable epidemic of loneliness in societies around the world. The way I see it, connection is the answer to all of these challenges. Connection to people, place, purpose, and power. Our work in the 21st century, I believe, is to restore belonging. Kim, you give some, um, you make some really important connections between loneliness and poverty and, and thanks for sharing that, you know, these are really rooted in evidence, um, but also in people's everyday experiences. So I think you framed really well why it's so important that, that we need to address this issue. Given the importance of it and, and the urgency, um, I'd love if you could share some tangible examples on, on what we can do. So from an individual perspective, from an organization, from a community perspective, what are some things that we can do to overcome loneliness, especially with respect to folks who are experiencing both loneliness and who are living in poverty? Thank you very much for that question. And what I'd like to do is to share another story with you and then, uh, and then give some examples about what people can do wherever they live in community. I have a friend who has had extraordinary success in addressing isolation and building rich connection in circumstances of serious poverty. And I think his approach is a model for how we can address these issues more broadly in the world. His name is Dixon Shabanda, and he's a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe. Back in 2005, Dixon was one of only a few mental health physicians serving millions of people in his country. He saw a patient take her own life because she couldn't access basic mental health care. She couldn't afford the bus fare to come from a rural village to get needed treatment in the capital. He knew there were so many people like her, living in isolation and despair, struggling through poverty, and unable to access the help they need. So that year, Dixon had an idea. He decided he would train older women in communities across Zimbabwe in evidence-based talk therapy. Rather than seeing patients in crowded clinics in urban centers, these grandmothers, as he called them, could provide their services on easily accessible park benches all around the country. Dixon wanted to look to these caring grandmothers to revolutionize mental health care. I should also point out that this Friendship Bench program was started by a grant from Grand Challenges Canada. And just a few weeks ago in Toronto at a symposium that I convened, on reimagining community in the 21st century, we brought both Dixon and a bench back to Toronto with Grand Challenges Canada and look forward to, to seeing the benches all across our country too. The friendship bench idea succeeded. There are today hundreds of grandmothers offering services in more than 70 communities across Zimbabwe. The program served more than 30,000 people in 2017 alone. Recently published in the Journal of American Medical Association demonstrate research that the grandmothers are on average better at treating depression than psychiatrists. This is incredible. And it's only possible because the grandmothers help build belonging. They help patients restore connection to those four Ps, people, place, power, and purpose. First, it's connection to people. 
The grandmothers build belongings through relationship and care. They ask questions without judgment. They pay attention and they stay present. Second, the grandmothers help cultivate a sense of place. The grandmothers meet you face to face and speak language that's rooted in your local reality. Basically, you can sit on a park bench and feel at home. Third, the grandmothers help connect people to their own power, which I imagine more as empowerment. They help patients to find solutions to their own problems. The grandmothers don't try to pretend they have all the answers. They're not prescriptive. Fourth, the grandmothers help build belonging by focusing on purpose. They help people engage in deep questions about what they really want. They help people find inspiration too. The work of the friendship bench isn't just about building belonging for patients. It's also about building belonging for the caregivers themselves. It helps both the patient and caregiver find connection. For me, connection only really works when it's reciprocal. This is a great example of that too. And it shows what it really looks like to address isolation amidst poverty. In addressing isolation, this program mitigates some of the most painful effects of poverty. So how do we bring this approach to scale? How do we think in practical terms about addressing disconnection around the world? I believe we need a global movement focused on building connection, one begun right here in Canada. I think of it as a movement to enshrine our right to belong. 75 years ago in the ruins of World War II, the countries of the world came together to enshrine a powerful set of human values. As you know, that became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What inspires me about Eleanor Roosevelt and the other leaders of this movement is that they had the foresight and boldness to articulate humanity's highest hopes. They were presenting a vision of the possible in order to inspire action for peace and justice and equality. Today, we're in an age of so much isolation, so much disconnection, from place and nature, disconnection from community and culture and decision-making power. I believe strongly that we need to again imagine our highest aspirations. And I believe we need to imagine a right to belong. Allison, this isn't just an abstract idea. Belonging is our birthright. Belonging is a state of being to which we are all inherently entitled. All human beings, by simple virtue of the fact that we were born, have a right to belong. So I believe we can all play a part in enshrining this right to belong by taking actions like Dixon has done. We can take actions to address social isolation, poverty, stigma, shame, disrespect, and disempowerment. And we can take action to build deeper connection through it all. I'll now just give some examples of what we can all do in our own communities. For a local school, it could mean financial commitments for special needs programming or bilingual education, or care for recently arrived young migrants. For community organization, it might be a commitment to creating welcoming spaces where people of all ages, regardless of age, income, or social status, can meet as friends and be together in a spirit of reciprocity. For people living in a town where there's low civic participation, it could mean working to create a community budgeting process that empowers low-income people to help steer decisions about the allocation of resources. For someone living in a community where there are harsh divides on the basis of social class, it could mean hosting a party or a dinner to bring together people from different backgrounds to build personal rapport. For a church, synagogue, or mosque, 
It could be in hosting a festival to unite people across cultural and class differences, to talk about common values and opportunities for collaboration, to bring more positivity to a community and to the world. For a city planner or municipal official, it could mean working with a community group or local NGO to host listening sessions and crowdsource ideas for building new parks or community centers to boost the sense of connection and rootedness. For people living in a community with little green space or limited connection to nature, it can be in coming together to form a community garden or to remediate a polluted plot of land to create a space for play and contemplation. For a local grocery store, it could mean giving employees, everyone including accountants, clerks, cleaning staff and cooks, a voice and vote in company decisions and investing in employees' learning and skills development so they can make such decisions as well. For a technology company, it could mean prioritizing innovations that boost face-to-face -face connection and support real human dignity over just economic efficiency. For a cultural institution, like a symphony or theater company, it could be in launching an egalitarian and open creative organization to empower all kinds of people from the neighboring communities to participate in creating something really beautiful for the president or prime minister of a country, for the mayor of any city. It could be in championing the cause of social connectedness, investing in national strategies to address these issues. These are just a few ideas to get us started. Coming back to your question, I believe that everyone can play a part in addressing isolation and poverty. There are no barriers to entry in this movement. The work starts with recognizing that the problem of poverty isn't entirely about financial or even material circumstances. It's also about disconnection. The way I see it, too many people in our world are lacking the experience of belonging. Too many people are disconnected from needed material resources and also disconnected from people, place, power, and purpose. However, and this must be stated, I am an optimist. I believe we can change this situation. We can all do this together. I'm so glad to be with you in this movement to build connection and rootedness. Yeah, there's some really powerful examples, Kim. Um, I love how you really illustrate how we all we all can and need to play a role and i love the socially grounded approaches especially noting that we really can support complex issues you know like you know you know mental health for example through things like friendship benches and through really basic actions like caring and paying attention and noting that reciprocity that's needed so that both parties find connection together i think that's so important and I, I really appreciate those examples that you gave. Well, thank you very much. And I, uh, I'm happy, uh, happy to be a resource, uh, however I can, to the work that you're doing. Kim, I understand that your teaching term at McGill has come to an end um, and that you're continuing your work under your vision for a right to belong. Can you tell us more about the book you're writing and how listeners can learn more about your thinking? Yes, indeed, and thank you, thank you very much for the question. I, uh, I should point out that uh, while my uh, teaching uh, term as a professor of practice at uh, McGill University has come to an end, my, my love and commitment to teaching hasn't. Uh, I got to go to McGill in uh, 2016 and, and create the, the first ever course on the, uh, on the topic of social isolation 
and its relationship to to development. And I went there with an idea that this could be a subject and should be a subject that could be taught in any university around the world and, and in almost any faculty, as long as there was at least one passionate professor who really got what this is about and also was willing to bring in a lot of different perspectives, that it would be multi disciplinary. What I didn't know when I went there was that I was going to fall in love with teaching, which is exactly what happened. So now I'm uh, teaching and lecturing in different universities. I'm here uh, in the UK at the moment and, and have been uh, teaching at, uh, at Oxford uh, over the past week and, and look forward look forward to many opportunities to teach at, at people of all ages because I love it and uh, and uh, as anyone who's a teacher listening knows, you learn way more than you ever get to share when you're doing that. But having, having said that, I'm now really taking this work forward with a fledgling um, NGO that I've started, Samuel Center for Social Connectedness, where all of my colleagues at the moment are former students of mine from my years at McGill, uh, I should say, and are also uh, helping me research on this book. So together with the center, we're doing a lot of programs, uh, both in Canada and, uh, and outside of Canada, around looking at what happens to forced migrants, for example, when they come to Canada, where there are gaps that maybe need to be filled. Uh, we look at uh, othering that takes place, whether it's from, from food security to migration, to disability rights, to multidimensional poverty, with a view that oftentimes it's not the the what that happened it's it's the way that people respond and and so if anybody's interested in learning more about that i'd be delighted delighted to share we have a website called socialconnectedness.org this leads me right into the book because the book the teaching the center they're all all connected around the same idea which is this idea that that belonging isn't just something that we need it's something that we have uh, as a birthright and, and a way, I believe, of calling out a whole neglected set of rights, including the right to live in community with others, right to safety, right to education, and so forth, that in one way we take for granted on paper but often don't see playing out in society. Uh, in, in just about every country in the world, there are challenges. So I decided to, to write a book about, about this really Still with the same inspiration that I had more than 20 years ago, which was this idea, this conviction, I should say, that nobody should ever have to feel as though they are sitting alone at the bottom of a well. And I got that idea really just imprinted into my heart in 1997 when my, when my father had an out-of-the-blue and very serious brain injury. He was then in a coma for three months. He woke up very slowly. Uh, went to rehabilitation hospital, uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada. We were in the U.S. when it happened. And when he got home with my mother as his wife of 40 years, but now designated primary caregiver, I was seeing that it wasn't the disabilities that dad had. It was the way that in the minds of even well-meaning people, they were, they were being reduced, not invited so much to gatherings anymore, accessibility was an issue, and so on. I just kept seeing this figure in my mind's eye of someone sitting alone at the bottom of a well. I can't, none of us can take away another's suffering. I don't believe that. But what we can do is to be there with someone, which is usually any one of us at any time in a life that goes through some measuring of suffering 
and uh, and make sure that that person is supported and not not alone. And uh, and so that's translated into both uh, trying to uh, raise this this clarion call at the policy level, at the program level, uh, at the international level, but also kind of what happens on on the street where we where we live. And and I think the real healing starts with inside each one of us. But as we are all individuals living in community, I'm just convinced that if I just keep sharing my message enough with opportunities like this that you've given me today and have uh, and have people willing to work with me and bring their own voice and vision that we'll get there. You bring so much uh, personal experience, academic experience, and so much passion to this conversation. Kim, and you're such a great storyteller. Thank you so much for painting the picture of loneliness and poverty for us today. Well, thanks back to you, Allison. Thank you for asking all these questions that really give me a chance to talk not only about what I'm doing, but, but why, and hopefully this will connect with some people and uh, and if it does then I really hope to hear from them and we can all work on this together thank you so much and we look forward to reading your book when it when it comes out today's episode is just one of many discussions that are part of Tamarack's podcast series on loneliness to listen to others and to access additional resources please visit www.tamarackcommunity.ca